product leaders and teams are continuously walking a tightrope between urgency to meet customer needs that create value for their companies and taking sufficient time to ensure they don't build the wrong thing. In fast-paced product decision-making cycles, assumptions are frequently made, even implicitly, that come back to haunt those product teams later. In this episode of Fearless Product Leadership, I asked five seasoned product leaders to answer the question, how have you been burned by risky assumptions? Welcome to the Fearless Product Leadership Podcast. This is the show for new product leaders seeking to increase their confidence and competence. In every episode, I ask experienced and thoughtful product leaders to share their strategies and tactics that have helped them tackle a tough responsibility of the product leader role. I love helping emerging product leaders shorten their learning curves to expedite their professional success with great products, teams, and stakeholder relationships. I'm your host and CEO of Fearless Product, Hope Curion. Assumptions that never made the light of day frequently unsettle even the most customer-centric, evidence-based, hypothesis-driven product teams. They often surface too late by product teams eager to get products and features into customers' hands quickly, expediting value creation for their companies and not wanting to be stuck in analysis paralysis. In this episode and the following one, we're going to dig into the perils of risky assumptions, how they can disrupt teams, customers, and companies. And in the next episode of Fearless Product Leadership, we're going to cover what techniques experienced product leaders use with their teams to avoid assumptions making asses out of, well, you know. In the first episode, you're going to hear stories of product decisions gone wrong because of pesky, Risky assumptions, including our customers will pay for it. Our customers are ready for it. Our customers will accept our MVP. We can add those features in a later iteration and we know enough, let's just go do it. Fearlessly tackling the question, how have you been burned by risky assumptions are Mark Abraham, head of product engagement at ASOS and former CPO at Settled, Rachel Obstler, VP of product at PagerDuty and former VP of product at Keynote Systems, Nicole Brolin, Chief Product Officer at Seek, Preston Smalley, VP of Product Management at Comcast, and Ezene Edweze, VP of Product at Procore and former VP of Product at Bizarre Voice. First, Mark Abraham of ASOS shares a story of how trying to deliver an MVP of a highly desired capability for customers backfired after assuming an important need for large customers could be deferred for a later iteration. Yeah, so I think thinking back to a time when um, I was burned by a risky assumption, what comes to mind is when I worked on a a marketplace product, effectively a bit similar to Etsy in the US, where we had sellers of artisanal products on one hand and buyers of those products on the other. And I focused very much on the, the seller side of things together with the team. Whilst we were working on what we did was creating a dashboard for the seller so they can see all their financial data and the SKU data of all the individual products that they had with us on our platform in one single place. Because up to that point, that was pretty all over the place. And we had lots of requests from our sellers to say, can you make it much easier for me to navigate so I know how much stock I've got, how I'm doing on your platform, where my sales are coming from, all that good stuff. And as we were doing our discovery and talking to lots of sellers, doing demos, presenting early stages from pieces of paper to you know, clickable prototypes, there were one or two uh, particularly slightly bigger sellers. So, you know, people who generate a million plus 
uh, per year through our platform, mentioning something about access to all that financial and commercial data and, and being able to restrict that access within their company so that not everyone can see it. And I heard that and I said, well, yeah, now I take that on board, but you know, it might not be in version one of this dashboard that we're releasing because obviously we want to keep it very simple. First mission that we have with this product is to get everything into one place and then we can start building on that. Once people start using it, then we can start looking in more depth at things like security, like usability, adding extra, extra features, you know, true MVP style. So I remember very clearly what happened when we actually launched it. So very excited. Obviously, we've done it very quickly, you know, no more than a month of kind of discovery and development time. So we were quite, you know, pleased with ourselves as a team thinking we got this over the line. It was only literally 10 minutes after we just pressed send um, that I can see literally from one end, I've got the person heading up the, the seller proposition side of coming to me from one end and our COO coming from the other end and both with very stern faces. Oh gosh, bring it on. Um, and what happened was that, you know, a couple of our really big, again, those sellers that did a lot of business through our platform had complained because they said, suddenly all my sales data is out in the open being, you know, everyone in my company. And these are businesses, you know, not massive, but still, you know, good 10, 15 people could access that data. And they said, no, that's not great. We don't want that. We want to keep a lid on that data. We normally don't share that data with our personnel because we're a bit uncomfortable with what, what they might do with that data. Uh, and if you don't fix that right now, I'm off your platform, effectively. So it, I think it's a good example of an assumption. Well, it wasn't an assumption. My assumption was when I heard initially as part of the discovery phase, people saying, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have some security and, and some kind of restrictions around the uh, sharing of the data? How, how big can it be, right? Most of these companies are small operations. You know, they know everything about anything anyway. I've only heard it a few times. Surely it's not a biggie. Let's let's release without and, you know, we can always fix it later. And I've definitely learned from that experience that even if it's one or two, it's worth spending some time, if, if anything, assessing the risk of, of not listening to that kind of requirement or that problem to solve, uh, rather than just making that very simple gut feel kind of assumption to say, well, surely it's not a big problem. And I think, you know, to add to that is... I think it also taught me about empathy. Uh, whilst I was thinking, you know, I've done my discovery. I've, as you say, I've listened to customers. I feel their pain, but clearly, or I hadn't, you know, necessarily spent enough time on certain pains that they mentioned. So, yeah, that, hence, hence the learning about uh, empathy. Next, Rachel Obsler of PagerDuty shares how she was burned by the risky assumptions made by her and the leadership team about a product that was so obvious they should just go build it. I think the the most insidious or riskiest assumptions are the ones that that you don't know that you're making. What I've what I found, and I'll tell one story about one. But what I found is that a lot of times those risky assumptions come from um, order taking, right? Like that's the bane of product management is order taking, and and uh, that can come from a customer, right? A customer says that they want X, but um, I actually think that that's that's one that most of the product team and product managers, good product managers I've worked with are very good. They get very good at understanding when, when those are happening and, and how to you know, combat those. So I think actually the, the riskiest types of assumptions and the ones that are the most insidious are what I'll call the executive assumptions. 
And that's when some executive, and I, I know I am one too, so I, but I say this like the class of people, um, I can also do this, say something like, we need to do X or, you know, this idea. So this is the specific one. So an idea was floated at our, our executive leadership team. And it's an idea that I had actually proposed. And so the feedback I got was, do it, you should just do it. And so I took that as an assumption of there was an agreement that this was going to get done. So we put together the plan around doing it. Now, this, this change um, would have involved changing a SKU, right? That means changing pricing. So, And now that we're a public company, there's, there's things that you need to do when you do something like that. Like it changes things in the market, it changes perception, all those things. So in any case, we put together this whole plan around it and presented it to the CEO. And she's like, well... Um, I think we should try this first or this first, or are you sure we should do this? And so it was immediately apparent that even though it seemed like there was a decision made or everyone liked the idea and said, you should just do it, that is different from actually putting together a plan and making a decision with all of your evidence and really signing off on it. And so even when like these things sound like they're done or that there is a decision I think you always have to assume that if someone says we should do X, that you still own the decision, the assumptions, the reasoning, never take it on face value that someone else knows more than you do because they hardly ever do and do all of your homework for it, right? So that was one example of a a risky, I call it risky, but it's really just a, it was a mistake in assuming something that should not have been. In that situation... Did you find that you had to go back and do it again? Like the thing you essentially lost, it seemed like you were moving quickly and then you ended up having to spend the same amount of time as if you, if it hadn't been green lighted and you had to do it, or was there something else that you had to do as a follow-up to that? Yeah. So that is exactly what happened was that we put together this plan as if it was greenlit. And then we had to go refactor the plan to put together a plan to get to the point where you could green light it because we had the evidence that we needed at that point. So we turned it into what it should have been from the beginning, which was assuming we think this is a good idea. How do we validate that this is a good idea? Let's run this this, um, experiment. Let's validate it. And then let's go forward with the the proposal, right? Or the the decision. So it basically set us, I would say it set us back a couple of weeks because you know, we should have been working on the experiments and the plan as opposed to just putting together, like, this is what we think we should do without gathering the data. It's good that you have a CEO that values that, right? And not just, oh, good, get it done faster. So that you, you did ultimately make all the right decisions and get all the right information you needed for your plan. Yes. No, it absolutely was fine. And, and it didn't cause any big issues. But I think both myself and my manager felt like idiots, right? Like we, you're like, you know, we should know better. <laughs> exactly. That was exactly what it was, was that we of all people should have known better that even though there was this meeting where everyone said, just do it, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the answer. And they also weren't, you know, they didn't have enough evidence to say that. And we still owned the decision and the evidence gathering and whether or not we were ready to make the call. It was just a really good reminder to, to like these things happen a lot and you, you get so good as, as a product manager, I said, of recognizing them in customers 
when they're happening, but you have to also get really good at recognizing them internally, no matter what. Now, Nicole Brolin, CPO of Seek, shares the story of the time she was burned by risky assumptions when she was bringing a new product to existing B2B customers without really knowing whether there was enough value to justify paying for it. I think for me, we have an organization that has pretty heavy involvement from our strategy team. And the time that I can reflect on where we got pretty burnt by a risky assumption was where we had a feeling, you know, we work in recruitment. We had a feeling that we could provide a service that customers were going to pay a premium for because we were going to be able to help them further down into shortlisting. So basically, they'd be able to give us a brief and we would be able to present them with a shortlist of candidates and they've had to do nothing else. Um, And I think that the problem is that there were risky assumptions threaded in through there that um, the customers saw the value of that um, in and above actually using recruiters and that there was going to be enough value in that that um, that, that people were going to say, yes, I want to pay for it. And so I think what happened is we got too far down the path without actually testing, you know, is this viable? Is this desirable by people? We had a fantastic product manager. They pulled it apart and really kind of understood that actually this didn't have legs. It didn't have legs because customers did not see enough value in the offering as it stood. And the problem is because we got so far down the line with a specific solution, the business felt that they couldn't wait for us to do the right amount of work to find a really desirable solution. So unfortunately, what ended up happening is we had to park the whole concept, which is a shame because I do think there was something in it. But it really taught me and actually began my personal journey for advocating that we really start with problems and hypotheses first, and we don't start being too solution specific up front. I think what, because I think what happens on, on the willingness to pay, I think what, and this is what happened to us, people were like, well, a job ad costs, I don't know, $330. A recruiter costs, I don't know, depending on the role, like 20 grand. And so they were like, there's definitely value that we can deliver that people are going to be willing to pay more for. And it's like, yeah, but just because they're paying 20 grand doesn't mean that they're just going to throw money at you for delivery. Like if you've just bundled other things in, like it doesn't work like that. And so I think that was an important lesson for us as a business. Next, as an Udwese of Procore shares how the risky assumptions about customer expectations and anchoring caught her and her product team off guard when they were releasing a new self-serve solution. There definitely is a time that uh, I got burned because I didn't really pay attention to the risky assumptions. So we spend quite a bit of time really thinking through risky assumptions, not just as it pertains to the customer, but also for the organization. And here's the story. My team and I were tasked with working on a self-serve uh, model for one of our products. And it was because we understood that our, it was taking the company way too long to onboard and implement our clients. So we figured if we gave them tools that would allow them to self-serve and onboard, it would be better. It would reduce our overhead as a whole, but more importantly, they could do it at their own time and speed. And we were really excited about this opportunity. However, the sales process for enterprise SaaS or even commercial size companies is a little more hands-on. It's pretty white glove. And what we discovered was even after delivering this self-serve onboarding and provisioning process, the reality is that the customer's first encounter with us is very high touch. Um, We were calling them and following up with them. And when the sale was completed, we were leaving them in this self-service. So yes, we ended up trading 
dissatisfaction with the time it took to onboard because there was a lot of back and forth in the original format for the product. We traded it all for that shock that the consumer had, or our clients had, after they signed with us because they no longer had someone to call on, or at least they didn't feel that there was somebody checking in on them because it had been designed to allow for them to take care of their own tasks. Um, and there just was a, a mismatch. So on my part and the part of my team, I think it was, we asked certain questions um, about our interaction with the clients, but we didn't perhaps step back and look at the assumptions for the entire ecosystem, the entire journey. And we thought, number one, that the organization was staffed to handle and intersect with the product properly, but more importantly, that our client or our new client was ready to make that mental shift from sales into truly onboarding themselves. So it's a big part of how we look and design for our new projects within product. Next, Preston Smalley of Comcast shares the story of how understanding customers' needs and pain points is not enough if you underestimate their willingness to pay for medicine when they already have a good enough home remedy. And he shares that if he had known then what he knows now, how he would have tested whether those risky assumptions were in fact true if he could go back in time. As I think back on risky assumptions, I can think of one particular time in particular early in my product uh, career that really burned me. And I didn't recognize it at the time, what assumptions we were making. And so let me tell you a little bit about how we got into that situation and, and what I've learned about it. Uh, this was back when I was a general for a company called Plaxo. And the whole intention was to try and get your contact list on your phone, your computer organized. And one of the things that we heard from our customers was that this was too much work for them, that they would have outdated contacts and they didn't know what people's latest phone numbers were and all this. And, and so we said, well, look, we can help you with that. And, and so we started thinking about some solutions using machine learning and the latest Cassandra databases. And we had um, artificial intelligence that was going to go out and look across the internet and figure out some of these things that would help you solve this problem. And along the way, we did user research. We talked to people and we said, look, is this, are these problems that you experience? And they're like, yes, absolutely. I'd love you know, somebody to solve these problems for me. And we went ahead, built the product, released the product. And what did we hear? Crickets. You know, nobody was buying this product. It was a, it was a product that cost about $5 a month. And you know, we started to probe as to what happened. We got into this situation where we realized people did have this problem, but they, it wasn't worth enough to pay to solve it, that the pain that it created in their lives was easily solved. So maybe I didn't have a phone number, but I could go hit somebody up on Facebook and within a couple minutes, I'd find the phone number. And so it got us into what sometimes people talk about is this pain kill, uh, uh, medicine versus vitamins problem, where it, it wasn't worth the medicine for them. It was, yeah, it's, it could be a little healthier, but it wasn't worthwhile. And I think it was in hindsight, recognizing that in this product, it wasn't a big opportunity. It was something nobody had really done before in the product space, but it wasn't something that was needed enough by customers. And we didn't recognize that that was a leap of faith that we were making. You know, in hindsight, you could have done... This is when I came to really the realization that lean startup and some of those methodologies would be useful because you, you, you could easily have solved for some of this using an MVP uh, landing page test, as an example. Um, we can go see, well, look, here we got this product. It's $5 a month. Would you be interested in being part of our beta program or trying it out? Um, we would have easily sussed out some of these problems. I think you could have, you could have faked a lot of that 
big tech that we were doing and, and a Wizard of Oz style demo behind the scenes and, and really try and understand that. And then there was another question that somebody raised uh, around, I think this was, I actually just saw this last week, the Landis School guys were talking about how you could say, how disappointed would you be if this product went away? And so really trying to understand like how, if we would have given it away for free to people, we would have recognized that they would have been like, yeah, it would have been okay if I lost it, but I probably would be fine. And so I think it taught me that really failure is, is just part of the process and that you need to incorporate, you need to really look hard at assumptions you're making or even facts that you think you have from, from research and really question how, what do you really know about this? Like in our case, we knew that they had this problem, but do we know that they really wanted to pay for a solution? And assessing those two things apart, I think is really important for a product manager to figure out. Product leaders and teams are human, and we humans are prone to all kinds of wishful thinking and biases. Eager to deliver value to customers, stakeholders, and investors, we can be walking down that road paved with good intentions and full of overconfidence and optimism bias. However, experienced product leaders who've been around the block know that more often than we'd care to admit, it is the lack of surfacing these assumptions that bites us in the ass. We avoid delays of rework and that awkward dance of rebuilding confidence with our customers and stakeholders after a failed release when we take the time early in our product development to bring our risky assumptions into the light of day and experiment to resolve them. In the next episode of Fearless Product Leadership, we'll get into the techniques experienced product leaders use to help their product teams and stakeholders realize their unspoken assumptions. And we'll cover how to put those assumptions onto the examination table and subject them to experimental rigor to sort out the true and easy to manage assumptions from the false and possibly catastrophic assumptions. If you're a new product leader feeling like risky assumptions are about to burn you, I'd love to be of help. Contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter or schedule an initial consultation with me using the contact me page at fearless-product.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fearless Product Leadership. If you know a new product leader who would find this podcast helpful, please share it. You can follow me, Hope Gurion, on LinkedIn and Twitter, or subscribe to the Fearless Product Leadership podcast on your favorite podcast platform to be notified of new episodes. You will find transcripts, video versions of each episode, as well as more information on my Fearless Product Coaching and Consulting services by visiting my website, fearless-product.com. Fearless Product. Confidence through evidence.